You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Oh, and you should have seen the wailing and gnashing of teeth. Of, well, well, what are you going to do? We don't want to be here till Christmas. Following MAGA is like Thelma and Louise going over a cliff. Important things in here, like the Ukraine aid, like the TikTok ban, like the electoral count ash. And they never tell you the truth, right? A license to lie is called being a congressman. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. I know how hard this time of year can be. That's why sometimes the smallest act of kindness can mean so much. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. They passed the budget. Now the exodus. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics as the House clears a massive government funding package just in time for Christmas. And over the objections of many Republicans... Tonight, we dare look inside the $1.7 trillion plan with the help of our two experts on the Hill. Bloomberg government's Emily Wilkins and Jack Fitzpatrick with us in just a moment. And as lawmakers head for the hills today, we look across the divide to the next Congress with a Republican-led House. Jim Kessler of Third Way will join us later on the new agenda. We'll look back on the stories that resonated most with voters this year. Turns out they're different for Democrats and Republicans. We'll learn more from Eli Yokley of Morning Consult. It was the last piece of business for the 117th Congress. Here's Majority Leader, House Majority Leader, Steny Hoyer on the floor. We are here today to fulfill one of Congress's most basic responsibilities, to fund our government and keep it working for the people. And they did. The $1.7 trillion omnibus we've been talking about now for days and weeks passed the House today, 225-201, after the Senate passed it yesterday, averting a government shutdown at midnight tonight. So I feel required to say nobody was actually threatening that. And it didn't come without a little pain. Uh, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy railed against the bill for about a half an hour today. Angry speech. And rank-and-file Republicans... Uh, took uh, their time for the same. Some leadership uh, members did as well. Listen to Texas Congressman Roy Chip. Oh, and you should have seen the wailing and gnashing of teeth. Of, well, well, what are you going to do? We don't want to be here till Christmas. Why don't you tell that to George Washington and the boys crossing the Delaware in 1776 or the boys in Bastogne in 1944? What were they doing on Christmas? Were they trying to fly out of the nation's capital and their jets back to their homes around their warm fireplaces <laughs> so they can be with their families after they absolutely just royally screwed the country and their kids and grandkids because that's what they just did chip roy congressman chip roy easy for me to say forgive my dyslexia he went he was and like many of his colleagues 
when after the way the entire process was handled, he was not only talking about Democrats either. Listen. Hell, we, the Senate makes us look like William the Conqueror. They don't even bother to do appropriations committee work. They just scoff and sit at their tables and go, well, we'll just do the work for them. Yeah, thanks, Mitch. <laughs> thanks, Mitch. And so how about we start there with Jack and Emily. Bloomberg government's Jack Fitzpatrick and Emily Wilkins. This is their specialty. This budget stuff has them working hard, and we're lucky to have them on this busy day. And maybe if you guys have a minute, we can stretch out here on this. Uh, Emily, Congressman Jim McGovern made a point to remind House Republicans today uh, that as they vote no on the bill, they will also happily then take credit for projects that were funded in their districts uh, with this budget. That's that's just the way it goes, right? That is. I mean, you know, Republicans, they, their whole thing has been that they want to cut spending, that they want to reduce the deficit. They're tying it to inflation. And, you know, this is exactly what we expected to see from Republicans today. Mm. We did see a handful of Republicans actually go ahead and vote uh, for the omnibus. Uh, you also saw, of course, that bipartisan support in the Senate where it's absolutely required. But I don't think anyone was was shocked <laughs> that Chip Roy went to the House floor today and said what he said. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with, of course, Kevin McCarthy at this point. Yeah. And that's, you know, they're, uh, of course, they both have their own their own reasons here. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, you know, was you could argue auditioning for the job. It wasn't lost on me, Jack, when when Jim McGovern went up to the microphone at one point and said, oh, based on what I just heard, he doesn't have the votes yet. Yeah, I, you know, there was a, a lot of politics on the floor, but I think everybody could kind of tell where this was going. Uh, it, it was clear that generally Republicans were going to vote against this, but they weren't going to lose Democratic votes. The Democrats still have the majority now. This can all kind of be seen through a lens of uh, McCarthy positioning himself for an eventual speaker's vote, uh, kind of uh, allying himself with some conservatives, your Chip Roy types, who are very enthusiastic about saying, look, this process that has gone very poorly from their perspective on spending lately has to change in our House Republican majority. So this vote wasn't some pivotal thing where it looked like it was going to fail, mm-hmm. but they, they had to give some speeches and get into it because they're not happy about the way things have been going. Well, let's get into this a little bit here. Uh, by the way, we should note, Emily, that a lot of these votes were done uh, by proxy, right? There was almost nobody uh, in the House today. What what were those numbers like? Well, uh, there were, I think, about 216 people who were actually in the chamber. It was either 216 in the chamber or 216 who voted by proxy. Mm-hmm. 218 is, is the middle line. So I think wow. that gives you a good idea. Okay. And I mean, let's uh, proxy voting, you know, they're, they're kind of two sides to it, right? There's certainly the argument that lawmakers need to be here, that they need to do their job. On the other hand, lawmakers knew the bill was written. They knew that they were just pushing through what the Senate has, has already cranked out. And a lot of them, you know, they want to be home. They want to be with their families. They, too, are frustrated with how long the process has took. Uh, yesterday, House Majority, outgoing House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer was talking about his own frustrations with the appropriations process and the budget process that we've seen. Uh, and next year, of course, proxy voting, Kevin McCarthy has made it clear that is going to be absolutely eliminated. 
but I think it is worth it just to sort of see how this little experiment played out with Hmm. proxy voting. I mean, yes, you saw members, you know, missing committee hearings and then zooming in while they were on their boats in the middle of the water (laughs) on a beautiful day. But at the same point, you had members who this year, um, you know, they were taking care of sick loved ones. They had cancer. They had legitimate reasons for not being able to show up and to cast a vote. And I think it's, it's, you know, would be interesting to see if Congress ever decides to take a look at how you provide members leeway while still making mm-hmm. sure that they actually show up in the chamber. But that will be over in the Republican-led House, Emily? A hundred percent, yes. Yeah, yeah that's at, at least at least for now. If something changes, but but that's what we can expect on, on January 3rd. Well, let's get into the bill a little bit here. Jack, everyone's been hearing the top line number because it's eye-popping, uh, and we've heard a lot about funding for Ukraine because of largely the Zelensky visit this week and some, some high-profile uh, skepticism. But some of the other important components uh, include like uh, the, the funding for the Pentagon, a 10 percent increase in defense spending. That's a lot more than President Biden asked for. How did Mitch McConnell pull that off? You know, it had actually started to get obvious that Biden was going to have to sign off on way more defense spending than he asked for. Remember, they put together their budget proposal uh, at the end of March, not that long after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And you could tell even in June or July, uh, Republicans would start offering amendments and markups on the initial bills saying we, we need more for the military and Democrats were really on the defensive. So you knew that was going to happen. I think the X factor the last month or so was, you know, there's a tradition uh, that's bipartisan that gets everybody on board that if you uh, increase defense by X amount, you do the same for non-defense and vice versa. Yeah. Republicans wanted a bigger increase for defense than non-defense. They succeeded in, in getting that. It was a bigger boost for defense than non-defense. Um, but ultimately, you know, this this boosted discretionary spending pretty significantly year over year. And that's how you get a deal. You get a good increase for both sides. Def- defense gets Republicans on board. Non-defense gets Democrats on board. Uh, and I, I think largely the, the war in Ukraine and the amount of money they had to they, they had to send money back to the U.S. military that used its drawdown authority to help Ukraine. That, that really boosted a bipartisan level of support for more defense spending in particular. Yeah. If that's the win for Republicans, Emily, w- was there something sweet that Democrats got that, that they might not have expected? I mean, there were a couple different things in there. You definitely saw the um, Electoral Reform Act, which is something that Democrats have been talking about for a while, uh, really trying to make it difficult for members to do what they did on January 6th, raising uh, that threshold for an agreement. Um, I mean, I think for Democrats, too, it was just getting it passed, getting it done, uh, not carrying this over to next year when you're going to see Republicans control the House. Yep. Closing the deal. Uh, You mentioned the Electoral College Act. Uh, that had bipartisan support, right, Jack? This was something actually that that's important that our listeners should know about. That you know, this goes beyond the spending plan. There were a couple of things attached to it, including this one. Uh, following that that last committee hearing of the January sixth committee is a pretty big deal. Yeah, yeah. The the attachments on this kind of bill we talk about it's a government funding bill, but it's also the last must pass piece of legislation. So that means they tack on other important things. Uh, and you're right. The Electoral Count Act was bipartisan. That was something Susan Collins in the Senate, the Republican, uh, was one of the people working on 
to essentially set a higher threshold for challenging presidential election results mm -hmm. and make it clear that the vice president's role in that is uh, a bit of a check the box kind of thing, that this, they, this was to avoid a 2020 January 6th kind of issue. Um, and uh, in addition to that, they added some other uh, non-appropriations, non-funding measures. There's the thing that uh, bans, uh, once this is signed into law, will ban federal employees from having TikTok on a government-owned account. There were some measures to increase requirements uh, for workplaces to make accommodations for pregnant employees and mm -hmm. breastfeeding employees that were added on late. Uh, so this, you know, this is they didn't get their tax measures there. They wanted to get a big tax bill. They didn't quite get that. There were other things that fell off. There was no covid uh, supplemental funding. But it's yeah. it's a big legislative vehicle. And, and those are a few of the other things that they kind of tack on the the uh, ornaments that they put on the Christmas sure. tree, so to speak. All of those were, were got bipartisan votes, right? Or they wouldn't have happened. Electoral Account Act, the right. TikTok ban. Uh, if you and, and some of the others that, you know, for, for protecting pregnant women in the workplace, uh, you have to to admit that there there was this was a bipartisan exercise despite a lot of the the very passionate objections we heard from some House Republicans today, Emily. Yes, I mean this is something that you know Democrats they they have worked a while for on this. Um, they have you know looked into a number of things. I mean, I think if I, if I can also just sort of say that this really for Democrats, I mean, it caps off what has been a pretty productive 117th Congress. I mean, I'm just just to pointing out that, you know, when you do consider the bills that they passed, you do consider things they got done. I think it's Undeniable. even worth pointing out. Yeah. You know, that that overall, like they were able to get, you know, what much more done than I think we were expecting them to with the very near margins they had. You guys can both keep TikTok on your phones, just to be clear, right? When you're walking the, the halls of like, maybe you can show that to the lawmakers if they need to know. I'm not on TikTok yet. I, I, Joe, I need you to teach me how to get TikTok oh, yeah. onto my phone. You're asking the wrong dude. <laughs> we can learn this together, though. Jack, the two old appropriators who you've covered very closely, Senator Patrick Leahy, Richard Shelby, are leaving the building. Uh, they both played a pretty big role in making this work. Is it going to be more difficult without them? Um, you know, this was uh, a good way for them to cross the finish line. I don't know if it's necessarily going to be more difficult without them. It, it's going to be more difficult to do basic legislating and fund the government with a divided Congress and a narrow Republican majority in the House. But, uh, you know, they're looking at the, the people in line are Patty Murray and Susan Collins to be the top appropriators in the Senate. Those are two well-established lawmakers who have a lot of experience do, doing appropriations work. Patty Murray was the one who worked with Paul Ryan on the budget deals uh, like 10 years ago. Um, there's a lot of trust and faith there. It would be notable that the, the the four corners, as they say, the four top appropriations member, those two, Rosa DeLauro and Kay Granger, would all be women for the first time. Um, so there's, there's some uh, lawmakers are kind of looking forward to working with them. But this was a nice way to cross the finish line for Shelby and Leahy, who themselves have a, a good, solid legislative record and didn't want to see this fall apart in their last go around. Yeah, that's right. Both delivered very touching uh, farewell addresses, and I'm sure will be remembered fondly by both sides of the aisle. I mean, they've they're part of the woodwork up there. Uh, not a mention of Batman that I uh, was that I heard, at least in Leahy's uh, farewell address. But it's on to leadership battles now, Emily. And uh, this is what's going to keep uh, be keeping you up at night in the new year. On January 3rd, this is when we find out how difficult life is really going to be for Kevin McCarthy. How is this going to work? 
So basically it's the very first thing that the house does before they approve any sort of rules is they get in there and they elect a speaker and people say that 218 is the magic number. That's pretty much right. McCarthy nearly needs to get all of his members either in line or if he can't get them to vote for him, he needs to get them to vote present. That's also another thing to, to keep an eye on because that does impact the tally. Mm -hmm. But at this point, look, there are five Republicans who have come out said they will not support McCarthy. They will not vote present. They are going to be supporting Andy Biggs or, or another member. And that poses a, a problem for McCarthy because he he needs at least one of them to be able to to you know agree to be on board. And they the five have said that there's more than them, uh, that they're members who haven't announced yet. And I think at this point, from the perspective of those members, from your Andy Biggs's and your Bob Goods, there is no reason for them to say that they will vote for McCarthy until the second that they do it, because they are trying to get concessions in the House rules, things that will give them more power to operate in the next two years. And I think those negotiations are ongoing right now. They are still trying to figure out exactly what the House rules will be for next year and how that balance of power will work. And so at this point, I think they're all kind of in this, we're all in a bit of a holding pattern, trying to see what these house rules are going to be. Uh, and of course, there there's always the chance that come January 3rd, if McCarthy doesn't get it on mm -hmm. the first or second ballot, that they might look to potentially make some rules that, that makes it easier for him to, to be able to become speaker. And, and could make it easier uh, for Kevin McCarthy to be fired, right? Isn't this kind of what they're asking for here is this rules change, Jack? Uh, that would make it easy, easier for one member to challenge the speakership. Uh, yes, that is something that has been discussed. Uh, my understanding is they're, they're still having some pretty broad and a variety of discussions on rules. The, uh -huh. the issue you're talking about is something I've heard brought up. Um, but to be honest, when I've talked to members and tried to get them to say, all right, what, what's your list of demands? Mm -hmm. uh, it sounds like they're still having pretty broad discussions about that, about um, spending rules to cut down on spending and, and more. Got it. Jack Fitzpatrick, Emily Wilkins, Happy New Year. We'll meet you back here for the Rumble in the House. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th. A thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. So it's just us locals left here inside the bubble. You can park wherever you want, go out to eat at whatever restaurant. Members of Congress are on the way to Grandma's house here, crisscrossing the nation on airplanes as we speak. Of course, many were already home having voted today by proxy, about half of them, as we learned from Emily Wilkins. But the next time we get to business on Capitol Hill, January 3rd, again, it's going to be the start of a new Congress with a Republican-led House. We're just not sure exactly who the speaker's going to be. But everyone is still asking the same question. Will they get anything done? Or at least, what will they try to get done? Senator Chuck Schumer was asked this in his year-end news briefing with reporters. Listen. Following MAGA is like Thelma and Louise going over a cliff. And that's what we saw in the election. 
And I intend to reach out, both on the, in the Senate and even in the House, to some of the more mainstream Republicans and say, let's work together. There are a whole lot of issues we can work together on. I'm not going to, you'll ask me which ones, I'm not going to delineate. But I believe this, these two years, the next two years, we had a huge, we have a huge um, uh, uh, two years to follow. I think it's going to be a lot more productive than people think, and not just on appointments and judges and things that we in the Senate can do on our own. As to the debt ceiling, it's got to be done in a bipartisan way. It always is. A party that tries to hold up the government and demand something in return is going to lose. Well, it certainly sounds hopeful. But as the majority leader just suggested, not everyone sees it that way. I'm curious to hear from Jim Kessler who knows Senator Chuck Schumer as well as anyone, co-founder of Third Way, Democratic strategist, and former legislative policy director for Senator Schumer. He's going to be in the majority, of course. Jim, welcome back. It's great to have you, but you're going to have a Republican-led House. How much will that grind things to a halt? Yeah, I mean, I, this is going to be a very interesting couple of two years, and I heard uh, Schumer say just what he said on the radio before. Like, he really believes this. Look, the variable is the Republican House, because what we're witnessing right now is the fracturing of the GOP before our very eyes. And it's playing out in the drama about whether McCarthy is going to be speaker or not. And right. look, I'm, I'm not so sure he becomes speaker here. And if he does, he'll be extraordinarily weak, but the weakest speaker of our lifetime. So that's going to weigh into the possibilities of whether stuff gets done or does not get done. Well, does that give Chuck Schumer the upper hand or a reason for Kevin McCarthy to not cooperate? Well, I think you're going to see two things happen. One that's, that we'll all see, which is, you know, Democrats, you know, Republicans, even with a weak Speaker of the House, they're going to be doing investigations of Hunter Biden and trying to show that the January 6th riots were really Nancy Pelosi's fault, not Donald Trump. Underneath, you're going to see a lot of bipartisan efforts behind closed doors that gets the blessing of Schumer, gets hmm. the blessing of Hakeem Jeffries, possibly McConnell on some of these. But the the situation with McCarthy, he could lose his speakership if he has it at any moment. So he will be treading very lightly. I expect the first year of the new Congress to be very ugly and the second year possibly very productive. How much does a, a presidential campaign, whether it's Biden, Trump or something else impact action on Capitol Hill, or at least the political mood, the climate? It will impact it on certain things in which the party, a, a party feels that if something gets done, it will, it could change the direction of the race. So for example, something really needs to get done on immigration, mm -hmm. but Republicans really feel that if the border is in chaos, it gives them an advantage. So while there have been efforts to get something done, Republicans have walked out every single time. So, you know, that might be a higher bar than some other things that could get done. Well, so let's have a real talk for a minute then. Is there a list of, of realities that Chuck Schumer has in his pocket? Or are we going to hear some familiar ideas like an expanded child tax credit, for instance, or maybe uh, the Safe Banking Act comes back around or what he seems to be working on in a more uh, sort of equitable approach uh, to cannabis legalization. These don't sound like things Republicans want to play with. 
Right. And you, you have to remember that we're coming off of a Congress that was extraordinarily productive, one of the most productive of the last several decades. So a lot has already gotten done. Yeah. But there are certain things that Republicans want. And really, some Democrats want too. there's the research and development tax credit. There are, there are priorities out there. There is a there's going to be a debt ceiling vote. And, mm -hmm. you know, no one wants brinkmanship on the debt ceiling. There will be brinksmanship on the debt ceiling. So there's potential that 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 will be a vehicle. And Jim, people are already talking done. about a government shutdown in September. <laughs> Never mind the one that we just averted today. Right. I mean, look, we should not be playing with the debt ceiling whatsoever. This should get done. It should get done on a bipartisan basis. But I want to have a reality check out there. Republicans have, have gone to the you know nth degree to the very final second and beyond on the debt ceiling. Yeah. And Kevin McCarthy's house is going to do it again. I mean, I mean it could be Stephen Scalise's house, too. Well, but. that's true. We're talking with Jim Kessler on Bloomberg Sound On. How about permitting reform, Jim? Will Joe Manchin have the same juice in this new Congress? Well, I hope permitting reform gets done. It's something that a lot of Republicans and Democrats agree upon. There's potential there. Joe Manchin is really working on it. You know, this was a promise Chuck Schumer made, and he tried to keep that promise. Republicans tanked it. Will this get caught up in 2024 politics? It's very possible. But, you know, what we saw this Congress is deals got done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there's a possibility on permitting reform. Senator Schumer has been giving Kirsten Sinema a pretty wide berth since she announced her decision uh, to to leave the Democratic Party and, and uh, be an independent, but also sort of tacitly work with the Democratic caucus. I'm not sure it's even been defined yet, Jim. What's that going to look like next year? Well, we just saw Kirsten Sinema cut an immigration deal with mm -hmm. a fellow Democrat, John Tester, to save the omnibus bill. You know, Kirsten Sinema, lover her or hater, Democrat or independent, she has been involved in nearly every major piece of legislation that has passed in the last two years, particularly the bipartisan pieces of legislation. I think she's going to be in on deals, not out of deals in the next two years. In on deals and a help to the Democratic leadership? Yes. How about Joe Manchin then? Does that, does this sort of reframe his position and his level of influence in the Senate? Or or is it much the same if she's not going to be a Democrat? I think um, so on a lot of things, she acts like a Democrat. She she is the 51st vote the way Angus King, who is also mm -hmm. an independent from Maine, is, you know, is an independent, but behaves in most places like a Democrat. I think yeah. Joe Manchin is relieved that he's not the 50th vote there. Hmm. And it gives Democrats some leeway, particularly on things like judges and appointments, where you don't need to get 50 of 50, you can get 50 of 51. You know, we talk a lot about whether Senator Schumer can get along with a, a potential speaker, Kevin McCarthy. What is Mitch McConnell's relationship going to be like if McCarthy has the gavel? Well, Mitch McCarthy, uh, Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy don't really have a great relationship right now. And, yeah. I, you know, he McCarthy uses McConnell as a foil, um, just like Trump uses McConnell as a foil. And what you're going to be seeing in the next two years is 
the fracturing of the Republican Party play out in a nomination process that I still believe Donald Trump will win uh, in 2024 and in, you know, fights, uh, proxy fights that are going to go on in the House and the Senate. And, and so McCarthy has to stand up to McConnell, which is a weird thing for to do to to hold on to his leadership position if he gets that speakership gavel. Mm -hmm. And his relationship with Donald Trump isn't helping, is it? Well, the McConnell relationship with Donald Trump is is awful, yeah. thankfully. And the McCarthy relationship with Donald Trump is obsequious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's right. Boy, we're we're in for some very interesting months here, Jim. Is Joe Biden going to announce a run for president next month? I don't know if it's next month, but I think by March he will announce that he's running for president. So he's in. And you see Trump as the nominee. We're doing this over again. It's Scary Movie 2. It's the sequel, okay? <laughs> and this is the one thing that you know about uh, horror movie sequels. The villain never dies until the last scene of the last sequel, which hopefully will be soon. God, right. That hand is coming out of the water. Oh, yeah. Jim, thank you. I'm really glad you could join us tonight. I know there's uh, it's a busy time and everyone's trying to get to their families and so forth. But thanks for all your insights this year. And we do look forward to talking with you in 2023. God, I'm going to have to get used to saying that. Happy New Year. Jim Kessler, co-founder, Third Way, and former uh, legislative policy director for Senator Schumer, who's in a pretty good mood as he makes his way back to New York. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. It's always fascinating to see what bubbles to the top in our splintered media world since so many people get their news in so many places. Not everyone's lucky enough to have a terminal. And in a year like we just had, it's useful to look back on what drove people's view of the country and the world, particularly in an election year. What was it that was defining the world around them. Morning Consult has been doing this research now for several years, an annual study building a huge amount of data so far on the stories that, as they say, were seen, read, and heard by American voters. And we're joined by Eli Yokely, senior reporter at Morning Consult, with more on this. Eli, welcome back to Bloomberg. Hey, anytime. Happy holidays. And you as well. Your headline this year, Midterms, Mar-a-Lago, Malaise. The news that broke through in 2022. But the fact is... Eli, midterms in Mar-a-Lago didn't actually even rank in the top five most salient news events by your ranking. The baby formula shortage was even higher on the list. What do you make of that? It's been quite a year. There's been a lot on Americans' plates. You know, this is the fifth year we've done this project we call Seeing Red Herd. We based it on hundreds of surveys we conduct throughout the year, engaging public opinion on a range of issues. And, you know, we do, do these surveys to ask about what's happening with President Biden or what Congress is doing and how voters feel about it. But a big part of that is understanding what's actually breaking through the American people. And so this year, um, we were watching the midterms. We were watching everything happening with legislative action on Capitol Hill. But one thing that's been true for the last five years of this project is the events of the, of the moment stand out. I mean, this year, the biggest news event in its time was the shooting in Ubalde, Texas, at an elementary school. And that was followed by the the fall of Roe v. Wade, and then the death of the Queen. You know, all these stories that make the top three list, Hurricane Ann's up there, too, as well as the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. All these stories in this top list are, like, made-for-TV moments. I mean, we remember wall-to-wall -wall coverage earlier this year of the Russian invasion or 
mm-hmm. of the two weeks of coverage or more of the of the Queen's death. Um, the, the one that stands out in terms of how we think about the midterms is probably Roe. Yes. And this was a decisive moment in the minds of the American people. It was a 50-year precedent change. It had big weight in terms of just news value. But then it also weighed on a lot of voters. I mean, I'm standing talking to you from Kansas City right now. Over in Overland Park, Kansas, is sort of the heart of the abortion debate this year. That's where we saw a lot of um, people respond pretty viscerally in quite a red state and and voting to put the abortion rights uh, in the Constitution in Kansas. Um, that, was, that was a big moment for the American people, and it stood out in a pretty big way at the moment. Yeah. Roe Falls, as a story, uh, is number two behind the Uvalde shooting on, on this list. Seventy-one percent of voters, in your, your words, saw, read, or heard a lot about it. And one could argue, Eli, that it was the overriding issue in the midterm election, so maybe there's some crossover there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I remember having a lot of conversations with people this year about how the economy would weigh on the American people when it came to their votes this year. And clearly it did. But in Washington, it was wall-to-wall coverage. Um, You know, all all the political folks were talking about the latest inflation report. And those just weren't breaking through the American people in the way that they were to, you know, uh, policy elites who who watch these things very closely. I think mm-hmm. folks knew their gas prices were rising. I think that was pr- pretty obvious as they drive next to the store on their way to work in the mornings. But these these piecemeal moments did not break through in a big way. One thing that did stand out to us was the fact that you know these, they did break through to Republicans in a bigger way than they did to Democrats. Um, it was the same with some of the stories about immigration numbers at the border. Um, you know, Republicans generally hear less about the mainstream news stories that we're thinking about, but they did hear more than Democrats about some of these economic numbers. Uh, on the other side of that, you know, a lot of Democrats were more likely to hear about some of the negative Trump stories. Mm-hmm. So clearly, I think the American people um, consistently in our tracking of this stuff, uh, news bubbles do exist. And it's something that I think weighs on how they think about what's happening in Washington. The campaign season itself was ranked eighth here behind Mar-a-Lago, even though you can't really have the campaigns without the row ruling. I guess this also, to a certain extent, comes down to semantics. Yeah, for sure. You know, the thing that stuck out to me about the Mar-a-Lago raid um, was the fact that that it had about the same level of salience among Democrats and Republicans and and independents, for that matter. That wasn't a divisive issue in terms of how voters said that they consumed it. Um, and on, on one side of that, I remember watching the Democratic enthusiasm, the way they were thinking about the midterm elections increase, but so did Republicans. I mean, Republicans were not afraid to talk about the bar while the raid. Right. It was the framing of it, if you'll remember, that it was a, you know, it was this, it was this bad investigation, this political investigation gone rogue, and it broke through to a lot of Republicans, and I think it's something that definitely energized him. If I remember correctly, Donald Trump got some of his best numbers of the year after that raid among Republicans. Voters. And so some of this is even about about framing as much as it is about awareness. We're talking with Eli Yokely, senior reporter at Morning Consult, about their annual ranking here of the stories, the news that broke through in 2022. If you go to Morning Consult's website and check out the Scene Red Heard uh, presentation here on the main page, and you'll see Eli Yokely's name there sharing the, the byline with Cameron Easley, you can actually filter these stories uh, by party, Democrat, all voters, Republican, uh, are the three choices here. And some of these might surprise you. To your point, Eli, in some cases, it's across the board level of interest, almost no difference. In other cases, 
based on your political beliefs, you notice a story more than someone else. I mean, I think one of the more like funny moments in this in this analysis was we were going through the the, the divides between where Republicans heard more about something than Democrats did, and it reminded me of a story that I had totally forgotten about. It it was back in January when uh, Joe Biden was caught on a hot mic using an expletive to refer to Peter Ducey of Fox News. <laughs> Republicans yeah. were almost twice as likely to hear about that. Forty-one percent of huh. Republican voters said they heard a lot about. Uh, Joe Biden's offhand comment about a Fox News reporter. I think that tells you a lot about um, where some of these folks are Isn't getting their right? information. I remember watching Fox News that night. Mm-hmm. They, it, it was like the Queen had died in January in terms of how that was how that was covered. Oh, man. Uh, they gave a lot of attention to that. I think that I think that's a pretty clean picture of it. That's really incredible stuff. That's why this is becoming more valuable each year you do it. The more data, the more interesting uh, the takeaways here. Eli, thanks for joining us again this year. I'm just going to throw out there. Presidential campaign, top story next year. I I would imagine uh, it's going to be. Uh, this is a long campaign. Oh. Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump has got got us all ready to go, and he's winning. He's winning right now. He's still winning. Whatever it is, it'll probably include his name. Eli Yokley, senior reporter at Morning Consult. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Come back and see us Two. in twenty three. Anytime. There were several others uh, that we didn't mention on the list. By the way, U- Uvalde, as we mentioned, was the number one story. of voters saw, read, or heard a lot about it. But there were two other shootings on this top 15 list that they put out here. Buffalo and Highland Park are both right around the 50% mark. Three shootings, three mass shootings in one year here that makes the list. I'll tell you what, though, for better or worse, ranking just above the Buffalo shooting, the death of Bob Saget, 50% right there, Democrats and Republicans, It puts the world in perspective when you dig through this data. I've got a special Christmas message for you on the way on what is my final sound on of 22. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Sound On is brought to you by Innovation Refunds that small businesses impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic may qualify for the employee retention credit. Let Innovation Refunds do the work. Find out now if your organization qualifies for ERC assistance. They've already helped businesses claim over $2 billion in payroll tax refunds. Learn more at GetRefunds.com. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Welcome to the final moments of Sound On here at the threshold of the weekend. We're going to be unpacking everything that happened this past week for some time, huh? I mean, it was really something. The final hearing of the January 6th committee, the referral of criminal charges of Donald Trump. We had the surprise visit of Volodymyr Zelensky, his meeting with the president, his address to Congress, the big budget from the deal in the Senate to final passage in the House, the end of the 117th Congress. All that in the last five days. 
So good reason to drop the knives here, step away from the politics and reflect on a year that we're going to be feeling the impact of for some time. That's what I'll be doing this weekend to close out a very challenging year for a lot of people. President Biden spoke about the light of the season in a Christmas address from the White House. You know, and I believe Christmas is a season of hope. And throughout the life of this country, it's been during the weeks of December, even in the midst of some of our toughest days, that some of the best chapters of our story have been written. It was during these weeks, back in 1862, that President Lincoln prepared the Emancipation Proclamation, which he issued on New Year's Day. At Christmas, 1941, in the weeks after Pearl Harbor, Franklin Delano Roosevelt hosted Winston Churchill in this White House. Together, they planned the Allied strategy to defeat fascism and autocracy. And it was 1968 that the most terrible year of years, the year of assassination and riot, of war and chaos, that the astronauts of Apollo 8 circled the moon and spoke to us here on Earth. From the silence of space, on a silent night, on a Christmas Eve, they read the story of Christmas creation from the King James Bible. When in the beginning, God created God heaven, created and the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. God divided the light from the darkness. That light's still with us illuminating our way forward as Americans and as citizens of the world. A light that burned in the beginning and at Bethlehem. A light that shines still today in our own time, our own lives. As we sing, O Holy Night, His law is love and His gospel is peace. May I wish you and for you and for our nation, now and always, is that we'll live in the light the light of liberty and hope, of love and generosity, of kindness and compassion, of dignity and decency. So from the Biden family, we wish you and your family peace, joy, health, and happiness. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and all the best in the new year. That's more like it. With apologies to Argyle, Merry Christmas, everybody. It's almost time to queue up Die Hard and curl up with the family here. Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah to our producers, Christine Barada and Matt Shirley, our technicians, Justin Milner, Sebastian Escobar, and Sarah Lively. And be good to each other. I'll see you back here in a week. Happy New Year. Back in 23, I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor Data Powered Transformations 
This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio.